Well, morning, church. What a joy it is to be here. Uh, my name's Jesus. If you don't know who I am, I'm approved to oversee the youth work for the church. Um, it is a funny time being on technology. I think definitely as Ian and I have been in the building and trying to figure out how to do it, it's been a laugh, but it's also been a bit of a joke to try and do technology and to catch up with it. Um, if you well, you're at home, so if you have your Bibles with you, which you should because you're at home, go get your Bible. If you're a note taker, go get a notepad as well or anything that you want to do. Um, it's a lot easier rather than just kind of listening to me um, talk on. And the beautiful thing of being on Zoom is that I don't have anyone heckling me that we can unmute directly apart from Ian and Catherine in the corner. So it's, it makes it a lot easier. Um, first and fundamentally as well, Herman, thank you for sharing your notices. And Matt Clark, well done, mate. What, what a joy it was to have you lead us in worship virtually, in spirit, in truth. It was a great joy. But just wanted to flag, actually, um, you might be, you'll see an email hopefully come out sometime. It is a Christmas conundrum. Yes, we are back uh, with an old faithful murder mystery. This is not for the church just to have a nice social and be insular, but this is for the church to do kingdom mission and to outreach into the community virtually as well to invite people to come to something that will be a fun event rather than kind of slightly Christian cringy, but actually something that's going to be a laugh and something that we want to share with others so we can get them into our carol service, which again will be virtual with more details coming, but also get an opportunity to share the gospel. So really, really ask you that when some emails like this comes out, get involved, get invited. If you want to be involved in helping me run it and helping either app or the backend stuff, please reach out to me. We'd love for a bit of, a bit of help uh, and we'll kind of take it from there. Great. Hopefully that's given enough time for people to get notepads um, and my time hasn't started. So praise Jesus for that. Cool. All right, so we're going to journey through Luke. We're going to continue our trend in Luke of seeing Jesus ramping up his teaching for commissioning. And this parable that we've got to in Luke 16 is no different whatsoever. How, how we have kind of seen Luke write each chapter is conventionally in this way. Each chapter is summarized by one verse or one main point. And then from that, he either expands on it or he covers topics around that. We saw that in Luke 15 with the power of the lost coin, the power of the lost sheep and the power of the prodigal son. He kind of understands this teaching of if you're lost, you are to be found in the kingdom of God. But he ramps it up to another level as he goes through the parables. Luke 16 is no different. If I could stop and finish what I'm saying and summarize uh, the last the three preachers that have been in Luke 16, so Paul McCormack, Ian and myself, it would be Luke 16 verse 15 which would be basically summarizing justification comes from God when he looks at your heart, not by actions or outside appearances. Justification comes from God and nothing else. Because if you find there's something else, you're not justified. And it's about the heart, not actions or outside appearances that are seen. And the parable that we're going to look in in Luke 16, verses um, 19 to 31 takes this teaching to the next level actually takes it to the next level where it's kind of offensive challenging borderline uh fear inducing which is meant to capture our attention and our hearts to really grip our understanding of what this justification is and the kingdom mission actions that must come with it i say this not 
to then sugarcoat or not to apologize for the story, but to make sure we go through it, to make sure our eyes are open as we take these words bit by bit, rather than being put off by the words themselves. The topic Jesus is speaking about is speaking out of love and conviction and offense, not for us to just shy away from it, but for us to dive deeper in, for us to really see the heart of what Jesus is saying, for our hearts to be shaped and challenged. So we're gonna go through this literally line by line. I, I don't think I normally preach like this. I think normally I go through the whole passage and then kind of do the classic New Frontiers preach, which is three points, application done. But we're gonna go through this line by line because we really need to look at the wealth in the detail and fully understand what Jesus is trying to get across. So I'm gonna pray. I'm also gonna check that everything's okay. And then we'll, and we'll take from there. Okay, Heavenly Father, come and take control how we need you right now more than anything else we want you to meet with us be with us shape us mold us and holy spirit come and empower us right now i pray the words that i say will be words exactly from you and father i just be with me as i go through this be with us in grace and in love that we can really understand these words with great intent in your holy name amen amen everything again yeah. Good, good, good. All right. <laughs> Let's start. Chapter 16, verse 19. Uh, words will come up, but it's good to have your Bibles. All right. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted. Uh, oh, I cannot say that word. Sumptuously. Sumptuously. What a word. Sumptuously every day. Word of the day. Okay. Let's stop there. We have our first introduction of. A character. We have the rich man. Now the rich man is kind of shows his scale and wealth in his food and clothing. It says that he is wearing purple. Now purple was a dye created from crushing up snails back in the time. Nowadays I don't think it's the same way, but crushing up snails and was an extremely expensive process to be able to do. Fine linen was talking about the undergarments that would normally go under the robes. To have fine linen was a, such a soft expensive cloth that would normally be worn by those who would want to afford it or would want to do it out of status. Then it also said that he ate sumptuously. What a word! But also every day. Now there's one thing of feasting when you've got people around. That's, that's a separate thing. But when you're feasting every day, you can't have someone around every single day. I know us extroverts try and try it, but you can't. So for him to eat like this every single day, this is talking about a man who loved to indulge in life, whether with open doors or behind closed doors. This is a depiction of someone who shows his wealth and what he wears and what he eats. All that he does and that he's incorporated by in this one description is his wealth. That is our rich man. All right, let's go on to the next verse and see our next character, Lazarus. Yes, we've got Lazarus in the next two verses. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. All right, so this is Lazarus. He was probably a beggar, especially by the fact that he was wanting to eat from what fell off 
the rich man's table, the implied is the crumbs or the leftover food or the stuff that potentially would have been chucked into a food bin um, in our modern day society. I don't think they had recycling in the same way then. But those things that were not fully eaten would have been what he was craving after. Um, the name Lazarus is the kind of nickname and shortened version of uh, El Elaza. E-L-E-A-Z-A-R for those who are making notes. And in Hebrew, that means God helps. Now, the reason why this is actually quite important is because this is the only time that in one of Jesus' stories, he names a person. The rest of the time is either the poor, a poor man or a rabbi or a Samaritan or this or that or, you know, seeds or anything like that. He doesn't normally name a person. But he names Lazarus. Now, some people in commentaries have said that he's kind of uh, related to Mary and Martha's brother, who's also named Lazarus. And I don't think that's the case. I think it's not trying to pick on a person that they would have met. I think the name is trying to depict what is going on in the story. Sometimes you have that in a, in a story that is set something at the beginning, kind of hits a bit of a, a tone for the story of what's going to happen. And so calling this person Lazarus, which means God helps, it kind of sets the scene of what's going to happen. And we will we'll get onto it, but especially something that is probably not expected by those at the time. I mean, this man was covered in sores. That's probably not the same as leprosy. Um, otherwise, he wouldn't have been outside the rich man's house. He would have been outside the gated walls. But this guy was ill. He was not well. He was um, so ill, uh, he was probably outside looking for food, but even so, he had dogs who were considered dirty animals licking clean. That's another level. I like dogs, but I won't have a shower than ask for some dogs to lick me clean. And this is just outside the rich man's house. Calvin says this, he says, what could be more monstrous than to see dogs taking charge of a man to whom his neighbour is paying no attention and what is more to see the very crumbs of bread refused to a man perishing of hunger while the dogs are giving him service of their tongues for the purpose of healing his wounds. This is a real depiction of a man who is trying to find great wealth and a man who is in complete suffering. Actually, rabbis at the time would have described Lazarus as having no life at all. They're kind of three um, twisted ways of depicting if someone had no life as one who depends on food from another one's table, one who is ruled by his wife, it's an awkward one, and one whose body was full of sorts. So two out of three of what the rabbis at that time who are listening to the story were depicted as having no life is a pretty good summary of where Lazarus is at. He suffers alone, he's hungry, he's in pain, he's in poverty, and he's relying on dogs for some comfort. When we look at this, e uh, this image, it's so easy to depict that the rich man was blessed and Lazarus was cursed. That, that is what the first three verses of the story is meant to make us think that a rich man is this blessed man, wealth and everything, and Lazarus has got nothing. And yet we can't forget Lazarus's name. 
And this is where we're gonna come on to the next two verses. Let's dive into them. Well, the absolute, oh, am I can't again? Maybe I am a little bit, okay. <clears throat> Verse 22 and 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. In some different translations, an IV, it would have said Abraham's bosom. It's meant to um, kind of refer to an image of coming close to Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Since the rich man was buried, it probably refers to some sort of fancy burial, probably relating to the money that he had. It says that Lazarus died. It doesn't mention anything else. Which at the time, the probably best he got was a pauper's grave, which was probably putting a whole bunch of body, dead bodies gathered together. But more than likely, he probably wouldn't even be buried. He was probably taken and just put in a pile of other bodies, just rotting away outside the, outside the city. Culturally, is the scene that would be set by that verse. But you've got Lazarus taken by angels to Abraham. This would have been a Jewish Im imagery of blessing and reception to the faithfulness to heaven. In fact, Luke 6.20, when it talks about the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, slightly with this imagery, is mapping back to the Beatitudes that we saw in Luke 6, whenever that was. That feels like a long time ago. About being blessed, being poor, because they inherit the kingdom of God. But this rich man falls into the depths of hell. We've got to pause here for a second and take stock because we've just entered into the taboo subject of death and hell. We've entered into talking about what happens after life and modern day Christianity, if you look at majority of teachings that come out, don't like looking at these subjects. They like to sugarcoat it. They like to kind of go, well, after life, you know, it'll be okay, everything will be all right. No, we need to come to the reality of our faith, which is there is a time where we die, and after that, something happens. We need to recognize this. We need to understand this because Jesus talks about this topic quite a lot. In fact, these are one of the topics he talks most about. Not to have our reaction out of fear. But for us to see the reality of it all, the imagery that we kind of see about the Hades and that kind of stuff, that's many to depict the picture of what would be a part of their culture, kind of the Jewish culture and element of Greek coming in with some kind of rules. But what we're meant to understand from this is not expecting it to be exactly that. In fact, Jonathan Edwards says, when metaphors are used in the scripture for something that is spiritual, they fall short of what the literal truth is. So this understanding of kind of being in Hades and kind of what we come on to being in torment and that kind of things, are, those are words just for us to see an imagery and to just understand an iota of what it actually is going to be like. We must take stock of this. This is an absolute. This is a fact. Whether you think about it or not, and whether you like to think about it or not, there is no messing around it. Jesus clearly states there is an absolute, we die. 
that's the reality of what happens. The other account of the person named Lazarus was raised from the dead. Why he was raised from the dead? But I don't see him around in Israel still chilling or on an Instagram taking selfies. He's dead. He died. On earth, our earthly bodies will die. And there is something that happens after that. There's no rest in peace. There's no aspect where we can pander to the, the nice um, symptoms of society, of thinking that after this, there's in this kind of restful state we're in. We, we can't believe that. When we die on this earth, something happens afterwards. Now, this is really debated, especially when looking at the Christian religion, when looking at our faith. Because what the Bible states, or what Jesus is stating in this parable, is two, there's either a path of two when you die. You die, and you either have a path of eternal joy, and eternal um, uh, kind of satisfaction in God, or an eternal suffering. It's one of the two. There's no purgatory, there's no weight, there's no rest. Even internal joy, the celebration in the part that happens in heaven, which is what Revelation talks about in this imagery that depicts, but it's one of the two. Either eternal joy or eternal damnation. That's easy to kind of say, and when I've talked about this previously with other people, they kind of go, how do you know, Jesus? How can you be so certain about this subject? How can you say this? Surely there's more complexity about it. It's life, right? How can you say this with absolute fact that there's nothing else? Well, okay, let's talk about something else that's absolute, right? What about eggs? Eggs is absolute. Egg, eggs, eggs has an absolute here, right? So if I, if I crack an egg and I pull the egg into a bowl and you were, saying to, you were to say to me, oh, geez, by the way, I need that egg for something else. Um, could you put the egg back in the shell and do the shell up like it was previously? Well, all of us would look at each other and go, you're wrong. That, that's not going to happen. And if, if I was to get another egg, and if I was to crack that in again, and I was going to crack that in a shell, I've just got egg all on my hands. This is hilarious. Okay. And I was to put another egg in, and you to go to me, oh, jeez, um, could you uh, take both eggs, separate them, and as you separate them, put the same amount that was originally in the other egg, thank you very much, uh, Catherine, put the same amount back into both eggs as it originally was, and then after that, drop the eggs back away, we would look at you and be like, that is a, that's an impossible thing. Once I break the egg, it's done. It's a broken egg. It's an absolute. It's not going to happen. And what about for our bakers out there? If I was to hand you this bowl and I was to ask, look, can you make me some meringue out of that? As much of the egg yolk you can get out, there's going to be an element where the yolk is broken and you're not going to get it out. And so you would turn back to me and go, geez, ain't no way this is going to happen. You're going to have to get new eggs. There's an absolute here that is not going to occur. Now, it's easy to kind of go, geez, you're on one of your illustrations again. What are you on about? Which, to be fair, is valid. But my point is, if something as insignificant as eggs or meringues or baking has an absolute rule that if you do something, after that you can't go back, then surely life is exactly the same. 
something as complex, something as more precious, something as more significant than eggs or baking, like life has more of an absolute that we need to be bothered about. We can't go back when we've broken a yoke to make a meringue. Once we die, that's it. That, that's it. It's not like a second chance or anything like that. There's an absolute. Jesus is saying this to wake us up to the reality of what happens on this earth matters. We shouldn't change our reaction to be timid. This, this isn't to scare us to be timid or have wrongly placed fear, but it's to motivate us into obedience, to make sure that kingdom mission is on our mindset and what we do on this earth really matters. It really counts. Because when we die on this earth, that's it. There's no second chances in terms of remaking or repaying what we've done. It's too late. And actually talking about too late, we're going to come on to now where the rich man has asking and pleading three times to Abraham, which is kind of this Jewish inspired depiction to help us recognize what happens when it's too late. Kind of some of the workings out of that. So lovingly church family, I, I wanted to stop and take stock here to make sure we realize that life is precious and kingdom mission is urgent. We can't wait. But for some of those who don't know, I was in hospital earlier, um, about maybe four weeks ago or something like that, and I had an annual in my left arm. Now, praise God I'm alive here, and praise God I've got both arms. But there was a moment when the doctor said to me that I could lose a limb or lose my life. That's the reality. I don't know what tomorrow holds. What I know is that all I've got to do now, which I'll come on to, is live my life for kingdom mission because my life is in his hands. One Philippians 1.21 says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because when I die, I get to be, be with Jesus forever. But as I live, my life belongs to him. So as I stop here and take stock, lovingly, where have you put your priority of your life already? Because there will come a time where we all die. And what we do here matters. Okay, let me continue. Cool. Right, so we're going to come on to the first of his three choirs. We'll go through this relatively um, quickly-ish. I want to explain them, but I'm aware of time. So the pride cry. So it says, and he called out Father Abraham. He said probably father as a kind of Jewish depiction. Uh, that's what they would have been taught from a young age. It's kind of similar how in our schools are being called, um, you know, how do you pray? Well, Father God. Um, and, and that's kind of, oh, our father who art in heaven in, in terms of what is being taught. But it probably, how he comes on to is probably not what he meant. It's probably just what he's been seen, but not what he meant. So we'll continue. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in the manner bad things, in like manner bad things. But now he is comfortable here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us, 
and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you, um, here to you, may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man calls Abraham and asks Lazarus to use his finger to call water in his tongue. This image that the rich man is trying to do is completely degrading to Lazarus. Look at Lazarus, who is seated in eternal joy with Abraham, to ask him to lower himself like a serpent to quench his thirst with dipping his finger in water and just cooling his tongue, not even getting a glass or anything, but saying, you are low enough in status that I'm going to just ask you to take a finger and dip it on my tongue. This beggar, who the rich man saw day in, day out, never gave him anything, never helped him. He's asking him now to help out. But Abraham's response was out of love. It starts with child. He, he sensed this out of love, but with conviction and with fact. He also responds to the father Abraham, as I said about the culture. But the response continues by looking at what the rich man has done uh, with the, what he has been given on earth and how he's enjoyed it and how he's indulged in it. Tapping into the teaching that Jesus has already given in Luke 16. But Paul is hammering home of this idea of what we do with what we have matters. It's not the intention to say that money is bad. In, sorry, not that money is bad, but to have money is bad, but what we do with it matters. It, that's the clear message that is being trying to get across here. Profit is not a bad word in the kingdom of God, but what you do with it really, really matters. The other reason why we can state this is because we know that in um, we know that in Luke 7, there was a moment where Jesus came across the Roman commander. Now, being a Roman commander, you would have had money, you would have had servants, and actually the Roman commander was praying for a servant. But this guy got it. He understood that Jesus had a complete authority. So he even said, Jesus, if you say the word, I know it will be done. But he, what the Roman commander was doing with the wealth that he had was to put forward and to bless the kingdom of God. Therefore, what we're trying to get across here is that the rich man saw Lazarus, but did nothing. Even if the rich man was to give Lazarus a stale bread roll that rolled off the table, does this genuinely model what the kingdom of God looks like? We know the summary of the law is Jesus states in Luke 10. The summary of the Old Testament law is stated in Luke 10. Love your Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Which, which means to understand the teaching of the Testament, you don't need the fulfilment of the New Testament or what this now looks like. You've got it. You've got the Old Testament to understand what the intent of the command that Jesus wants us to live by is in the Old Testament. So does the rich man actually follow this? Does he live by this with what he has been given? And the answer is no. The rich man's story tries to justify his life with worldly desires and affairs rather than allowing God to seep into his fibres and to make him have a kingdom mission mindset, which means with what he has been given, using it for the kingdom of God. Therefore, Lazarus is comforted and the rich man is in anguish and there is a chasm. There's a gap. 
There's no going back. There's no second chance. There's no crossing. It's an absolute. Let's go on to the next cry, the panic cry. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man panics, recognising his hopelessness, but the family are in the same place with the same actions. They still focus on self. Even at this, when he recognises that this chasm, the rich man doesn't go, oh my, what have I done? He goes, oh, well, what about my family? What about those kind of things? There's no, um, <laughs> there's no restoration and there's, there's no understanding of actually what he's done wrong whilst he's in a terrible torment. That's crazy, but that's what happens. Yeah, the response from Abraham again is no, because they have what they need. They have most of the prophets, which is they have the Torah and the detail of the rest of the books, i.e. they have the Old Testament to look at. It was calling out that this is enough to spark a change of heart away from rules and regulations and self-satisfaction, but a submission to God and obedience and life. Again, the application is different for us because we have the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the New Testament, but the Old Testament points out the need for Jesus, the reality of the Father's heart and why we should be different. You don't need to just look at Paul's letters to see the need to love your Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. That line for Abraham should shock us. That the scripture is as good as a spiritual sign. How much do you get comfort and identity and direction from reading the scripture? Or are you always looking for spiritual intervention to break the habit? Man, have I been there? Or when I've fallen into things of things about myself, self-satisfaction, self-deprecation, and what I've kind of gone is gone, God, please help me to break this. I need your help. God, I need you to do something in my life. Whereas I have everything I need in the scripture. I don't need spiritual intervention in my life because this is God's breathed word that has been given in my life to a, kind of challenge me and step in a spiritual intervention. So how much do you actually honour the scripture compared to trying to always look for God to intervene? Church family, ooh, I've definitely gone over. Church family, how much are we actually looking at the scripture? Not because we have to, but because we get to, to enjoy God's word over us. Let me continue because I've, yeah, I've gone over. Is what it is. The spiritual cry. Okay, cool. Spiritual cry. And he says, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the, from the dead, they will repent. I find this hilarious, I'll be honest with you, in a, a serious story, I find it really funny how this rich man is trying to argue with Abraham about what is going to happen or not. Don't you find that funny? There's no repentance, but there's argument. Is, is it it's, it's crazy. How often have we done that? How often have you been convicted and you kind of just go, but you don't understand God. Like, this is the kind of situation. This is what's up. One, an understanding repentance needs to come. I digress. Abraham said to him, 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Oh, man. How many times have I been in this place? Crying out for a form of a spiritual sign or breakthrough to get confirmation or he will signal God's love. The rich man does it because he wants assurance that his brother brothers will repent. I mean, if an angel right now came here and was in this room on this Zoom call, I'm pretty sure all of us would be like, whoa, this is pretty big. Right? But looking at Abraham's response, and when I've just been looking at it, I think it's really fair and I think it's really right. And in reality, we experience this. How many times have we as a church heard that someone has been healed and yet some people are not convinced? How many times has the youth come back from New Day and shared all these stories that what happened and for sometimes, maybe I'm not claiming anyone, but sometimes because it's from the younger people of the church, there's an aspect of, of maybe a place in our hearts to go, did that really happen? Did God really move? How many revivals have there been that have been recorded in history, not even in the Bible alone, but in our modern day history, with filming, with photos, with everything, and yet for some people in society, when they look at that, go, really? Is that really of God, or is that just kind of a move of the masses? It's really easy for us to assume that we would have some sort of spiritual intervention that would be a great thing, but why would we assume that that's gonna change people's opinions? The Bible details all these things. God breathes word, details more than what we could potentially even see at certain times. The Bible promises that we're gonna see great big things, and yet it can be dropped like a stone if you don't want it. How easy is it for us to respond when we have an issue in our lives and someone kind of goes, hey, have you, have you read this to encourage us? Man, how, have you read this psalm or have you read this letter from Paul? And for our response to be, I know, but this is what I'm looking for. How often, even in our Christian walk, do we disregard the scripture and look for something else that will suit our satisfaction and desire to see what God wants to do. And we have the New Testament, by the way. We have the fruition of the Old Testament. We have Jesus dying on the cross. I don't need to sacrifice a newborn lamb to come into the holy place. I've got Jesus as who has done that. I've got the fruition of the New Testament. I've got the Holy Spirit who is living in me. I'm the temple now, no longer this building. And yet still we say, this is not enough. Still we say, this is not helpful. Still we say um, that the grace and all that what God has done is not enough for us. What we end up doing is abusing grace. We end up abusing mercy. We end up abusing what Jesus has poured out for us. We disregard joy. And what we do is we ignore a kingdom mission mindset and become trying to seek after our own satisfaction. But lovingly, I say this, sometimes when I look at Christians and see them without joy, I try and understand why they're in that place. I don't get it. I don't understand it. 
We have so much in the scripture, in what is detailed for us, that we should be full of joy. We should have a kingdom mission mindset. And yet, what do we seek for? Go on, God, give us a sign. As if we're going to be puppeteering God to crack open a spiritual movement just to stop us from doing a sinful thing or just to move us into a direction. How ironic is it that Jesus, who was raised from the dead, no one believed him and still they're suffering in acts in modern day society now. Yeah, the rich man says that people believe. The choice to be justified by Christ and be, de- and to be saved is not because of seeing a sign and going, yep, I'm done. I'm, you know, that's it. But because Jesus wraps into the very fibres of your heart and pulls you right out of that place and puts you into sonship and adoption with God because you are radically changed. This should break us into tears about when it says love our neighbours because there could be a time coming for those family around us or anything like that where they will experience eternal damnation if we do not do our job. So let me conclude. The rich man was not condemned because he was rich, but because he didn't use what was given to him. Think about the parable of the talents as well. The parable of talents depicting a person who had five talents in that kind of way that he, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't put down for having that, but actually what he did with it, he was honoured because he used all five talents in order to spread the kingdom. It's what you do with what you have. And where that place is from, it comes from where the heart is. It's what we're consumed by that matters. But what we're consumed by is what we believe should justify us. If I'm consumed by wealth, then I'm going to believe that wealth justifies me. And that's all I'm going to be bothered about. But if I am consumed by Christ, then every part of my being will be used to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether I eat or whether I drink, whatever I do, I do all things to glorify God. Therefore, if I'm consumed by Christ, in all that I do, even with my wealth, I will use that to glorify God. We are living in a dead town that needs to hear Jesus. And guess what? We aren't dead. It's not finished for us. I'm alive speaking to you on this earth. And therefore, we have part of a responsibility to spread the kingdom of God and to be beacons of joy to seep into the very heart and fibres of the kingdom. The story is not here to scare us about the reality of hell, but it's to capture our timid faith and to spur that and encourage that so that the story of mercy and grace that God helps is something that we then preach to the nation. Church, our culture has to change to make sure that we are a culture of mission and a culture of being bothered about saving lives, not a culture of insular faith. Because If we are not doing anything with the gifts and talents and the wealth that we have been given, then what are we consumed by? It's so important we get this. It's so important we get this. So I'm going to finish, rightly so, going way over. But church, this is such an important message we hear. The realities of afterlife are real. And if we aren't telling people about the eternal joy and relationship that they get with the king and having a kingdom mission mindset, 
then we are passively letting people go into eternal damnation. We are. So please as well, if you want to explore this further, Thursday's Bible study, we're going to be looking at this. We're going to be diving in deeper. Join us for that. It's really important. But let me pray and then we'll finish. Okay. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we get the privilege of going through this. I thank you that we get to just understand this parable a little bit better. I pray, Holy Spirit, help us to change our culture, to have a kingdom mission mindset, to help make sure that we understand the absolute of life. And there is a need to have eternal joy right now and to preach and to share the word of God rather than being caught up in our own wealth, our own satisfaction. Help us to change the culture of how we live. In your holy name, amen. Amen.